Section 8 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Moat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 Somerset and York, Part 2. After the dissolution of Parliament in 1451, little happened in the kingdom for the next six months. Somerset was still the king's right hand man, but the government was no more successful than before. Charles the Seventh of France went on capturing one by one the fortresses which still acknowledged the rule of England in Gascony. At home, the local troubles, as shown at any rate with regard to Norfolk and the Paston letters, were going on, not very prominently, it is true, but still continuously. There are the same interminable lawsuits about pieces of land and manors, the same hints of illegal maintenance by men in high position, of suits brought by humbler people in the shire courts, the same old difficulties of collecting the revenues of the kingdom. The last months of 1451 seem to have been spent by York in his estates on the Welsh march around Ludlow. Somerset was generally with the king. Guienne was being reconquered by the French. Calais was in danger. York was expecting every moment that a charge of high treason would be brought against him at the instigation of Somerset. Accordingly, on January 9th, 1452, he sent a letter to Henry VI, protesting that he was the king's true liegeman, although the king was his heavy lord, and offering to swear to this on the blessed sacrament. But no notice seems to have been taken of this. On February 3rd, York sent an address to the citizens of Shrewsbury, in which he adverted to the disgrace of England in the French War, the failure of the Duke of Somerset, and his own danger at the hands of the said Duke, who laboureth continually about the King's Highness for my undoing, and to corrupt my blood, and to disinherit me and my heirs and such persons as be about me. York, working with the approval of Parliament, and a great part of the country, had failed to get rid of Somerset by constitutional means. Henry VI, like Charles I in the impeachment of Buckingham, had merely dissolved Parliament and kept the hated minister in power. So York, after long sufferance and delays, resolved to try another way. Seeing that the said Duke ever prevaileth and ruleth about the King's person, and that by this means the land is likely to be destroyed, I am fully concluded to proceed in all haste against him with the help of my kinsmen and friends. His object, he said, was to promote ease, peace, tranquillity, and safeguard of all this land, and all this was to be done, keeping me within the bounds of my allegiance. This was the difficulty. York was about to use force, and he expected there would follow him his tenants and retainers, his friends among the knighthood and baronage, all those who in any part of England had adopted his badge and reckoned themselves to be his party. The frontier town of Shrewsbury, which in the turbulent life of the march was ever ready for war, was to be his starting point. This was York's first armed demonstration. It was a clear breach of the peace. The forces he took with him were very formidable, being at the lowest computation 10,000 men, although the contemporary Burgundian Varon puts them as high as 20,000, and this figure has been accepted as correct. He marshaled them as a regular army, and was even provided with artillery, an arm which was to play a great part in the Wars of the Roses. Henry, with a large army, 
30,000 men, according to Wedhamstead, was ready to meet him in the open field. The gates of London were closed, and York did not attempt to effect an entry by force. Instead, he went into Kent to try his fortunes in that rich and frequently rebellious county. If the men of Kent had followed the impostor Cade, they would surely follow in even greater numbers the Duke of York himself. York pitched his camp near the historic town of Dartford, where the rebellion of Wat Tyler had started seventy years before. He must have been a skillful organizer, and have moved his forces quickly. He cannot have left Wales much before the middle of February, yet by the end of the month he seems to have encamped at Dartford. The royal army, encamped at Blackheath, was only eight miles away. Events seemed to be moving toward a great battle, but the forces of the crown were very large, about thirty thousand. York had only about two-thirds of that number at the most. Moreover, the people of Kent did not come flocking to his standard, and although his forces were formidable, yet there were few great lords among them. Only the Earl of Devonshire and Lord Cobham were on his side. The rest of the magnates, although many of them were distinctly friendly to him, still shrank from civil war and so took their places in the king's army. Even the young Earl of Warwick, then twenty-four years old, who was to be the great protagonist of the White Rose of York, was at this time with the king at Blackheath. It was clear that York was not in a position to fight, and meanwhile the pious king was holding out the olive branch through intermediaries whom York could trust. Negotiations were carried on by the good Bishop Wainfleet of Winchester, Bishop Berchier of Ely, the Berchiers in the coming years were one of the great mainstays of the Yorkist cause, the two great Salisbury Nevilles, Richard, Earl of Salisbury, and his son, Richard, Earl of Warwick. York thought it wise to accept the best terms offered, and he came to Henry's camp as a simple subject, unarmed and with his head bare. He had dismissed his forces, and now, March 1st, he threw himself on the mercy of the king. Henry, of course, knew that York's party was as formidable as ever, and that the duke could not be treated as a conquered rebel. He therefore pardoned him, and seems to have given him to understand that Somerset would be held to answer the indictment which York had drawn up and brought forward against him. The whole episode is very obscure. Wedhamstead says York recognized the king's strength and came and submitted himself before any promise was made to him. Others say that he did not dismiss his forces and come to the king until he had a promise that he himself should be pardoned for his rebellion and that Somerset should be put on trial. All we can say now is that there was some misunderstanding. In complicated negotiations, when understandings, overt or tacit, are substituted for definite written and signed terms, neither party is likely to be fully satisfied, and he who gets less than he expected is sure to feel tricked or deceived. Anyhow, as matters turned out, Somerset was not put on trial, and York may have honestly believed that faith had been broken with him, and that he had been cheated, but this does not prove that Henry broke any promise. In the first interview between them at Blackheath, York may have overestimated the king's compliance, Henry may have overestimated the duke's submissiveness. On March 10th, a meeting was held in St. Paul's Cathedral, and York took a solemn oath not to disturb the peace of the kingdom in the future 
nor to proceed against any of the king's subjects in any other than a legal way. Thus, in the words of Wedhamstead, the Duke of Somerset escaped for a time from his hands. York retired to Ludlow. The king, happy in his reconciliation of all parties, offered on Good Friday a free pardon, with a few exceptions, to all who had taken part in the late strifes, and who should apply to the Chancellor for the pardon. About three thousand people in all, including the Dukes of York and Norfolk, took out the necessary letters patent. For the next fifteen months little of note happened in England. Local riots occurred in certain places, there were the usual lawsuits about landed property, the usual difficulties in obtaining justice in the county courts. The Duke of Norfolk was sent down into his county to try and bring law and order back there, to inquire of such great riots, extortions, horrible wrongs and hurts as his highness is credibly informed have been done in this country. Attempts were made to bring to justice some of the local men who were preying upon the county, but with little success. The king himself made a progress in the west from Exeter to Ludlow to pacify as far as he could all discontented elements and to show himself as king in the Duke of York's country. In October, the expedition of Lord Talbot was sent off to Guienne, where success for some time crowned his efforts till the fatal day of Castillon, July 17, 1453. In January of this year, a conspiracy got up by one of Jack Cade's former captains in Kent was dispersed. On March 6, 1453, Parliament met at Reading, where party feeling was not likely to run so high as in London. The object of the session was to grant supplies in order that the services of the Crown, such as the garrison of Calais, might be paid. The Parliament proved favourable to the King's government, as was shown by the liberal grants of supply, and by the Speaker whom the Commons chose for themselves. His name was Thomas Thorpe, a noted Lancastrian, who was faithful and energetic in the royal service, till he was beheaded by the Yorkists in 1461, after having fought in the first battle of St. Albans, from which he escaped by flight, and in the battle of Northampton. Parliament met in the refectory of Reading Abbey, and sat till March 28th. It reassembled after Easter at Westminster. The place of meeting proves that the royal government now felt strong enough to hold Parliament in London itself. It was prorogued again on July 2nd, not to reassemble till November 12th at Reading, in order that meanwhile the lords might get to their hunting and the commons to their harvests. But before Parliament could meet again, the king was attacked by insanity. End of section 8